0: amen you guys can go ahead and take a seat uh happy tax season everyone I was actually working on oh, yeah. my Texas last night just to get in the mood for this uh, sermon. So, uh, yeah, good morning. Uh, last two weeks, we're gonna, we kind of took a break from our series in the Gospel of Matthew just to uh, celebrate our church birthday, to reflect on what God's done. And uh, last week, Ricky kind of called us into just responding that like he's not done yet. Uh, there's still a mission to continue to go forward on. And so I'm excited about what the Lord has for us as we continue to go as a church family. But we're going to dive back into our series throughout the Gospel of Matthew. uh, And just to kind of catch us up on where we've been, uh, over the last several weeks, we've kind of seen the tension. Start to build. The tension rise as Jesus has made his way towards Jerusalem. Beginning of chapter 1, we saw the triumphal entry where Jesus is clearly making a statement that he's the Messiah who's been promised to come to fulfill the prophecies. He's the one to save his people. And as he entered into Jerusalem, he walked into the temple, flipped over some tables, got everybody out of the temple as he was rebuking them for making it and turning it into a den of thieves. And then as Jesus began to interact with some of the religious leaders, uh, he again starts to have these conversations where they're frustrated with him and they're calling out him as a leader, as a rabbi, as a teacher. And Jesus continues to show them that while they may be teachers of the law, while they may be teaching and walking with the people, there is no fruit coming from their hearts. He uses these Different parables, and he goes through these three different parables that we kind of walked through uh, through the beginning of the year. We start to see, man, what what is Jesus really doing here? And as you examine the three parables, we started to see that the consequences of having a hardness of heart or of being far from Jesus, of rejecting the Son of God, continues to move them away from God Himself. And as we walked through those three parables, we saw the consequence continue to get more and more and more serious throughout those. so this brings us to where we're at in Matthew chapter 22, middle of the chapter where we're reading how, man, these phar- Pharisees, these religious leaders, they just received judgment from Jesus in his parables. And rather than repenting, they retaliate rather than actually turning towards Jesus and responding to the sin against God. They say, man, this, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with us. Now we need to go attack Jesus. And in this next section, we kind of see three questions that the religious leaders ask. But today, we're just going to stay with one of those questions. In verse 15, we kind of start to see this whole story take off, how they respond to these parables and how they move towards Christ. Now, verse 15 shows us that the Pharisees, they want to plot against Jesus. They want to trap him by what he says. They want to get a response from him. So they have something to accuse him of wrongdoing. Now, as they as Jesus has interacted with the Pharisees before, time and time again, I'm kind of curious as to why they send their disciples. Verse 16 says, hey, so they sent their disciples to him. And I'm starting to think, hey, why did they send their disciples? Why did they go talk to Jesus themselves? I don't know if they're just like tired of Jesus rebuking them or if they're trying to trick Jesus all the more and be uh, kind of more cunning. Uh, or uh, slow kind of with what they're trying to do and and punk jesus almost was saying okay maybe he doesn't know them hey you guys go you guys move forward you guys talk to jesus and ask him this question flatter him with these words but it brings us to kind of see okay so who are the pharisees we've been talking about them and sometimes it's easy to forget who who they really were as teachers but pharisees for, for the majority of time, they were seen to have great support among the people. They're actually involved in the synagogue communities. They're involved with the people. They had a strict view of holding to the written and the oral law. These are people who wanted to continue to uh, take care of what God was doing. And that's why they added these laws around them. Because they're like, man... We don't want to sin, so let's put up even more fences, more barriers, so we don't fall into sin. And this is where they started to view their own law greater than God's law, and they started to worship this legalist type of way, this religious traditions. Now, the Pharisees were anti-Rome, right? They wanted to conserve their religious traditions. They were looking forward to the hope of the Messiah to come, the son of David, who's supposed to save them from oppression, who's supposed to bring them back, uh, that they would have their kingdom to themselves, that they would be a people who are on top of the world. But if we notice what's happening here, it's not just the Pharisees that go and talk to Jesus. They bring the Herodians with them kind of makes us go, okay, well, who are the Herodians? Who are these people that are going with the Pharisees? Well, the Herodians are pro-Roman people, right? They like Rome. They're from, uh, they're from followers of Herod. Herod was just like a puppet king who Rome kind of came in. They took over the Israelites, and then they selected a king to rule on their behalf for them. So we start to think, okay, these are people who are pro-Rome, and now we look at the Pharisees. These are people who are completely against Rome. So we start to see these are two people who kind of don't like each other. Two political entities, maybe, who are wanting different things and trying to go in a different direction. And yet, in this moment, we start to see them come together to walk into a room or to a place and to go to someone to challenge who he is and ask questions of him and wonder who he is. These two groups don't agree much on anything, and yet they come together here to attack Jesus with this question. What gets me is they start to butter him up, though. They start to say, hey, teacher, we know that you're truthful, that you teach truthfully the way of God. You don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. They start to give him all these kind compliments and nah, I love words of affirmation. So if that was me, I'd be like, "Huh? yeah, uh, I think it's interesting, though, because they say you show no partiality. Then they ask the question, so, who, so do we pay the tax or not? And what they're trying to do is they're trying to see where is where is Jesus' partiality going towards? Who's he actually agreeing with? Whose side is Jesus actually on? Now, this may seem like a simple question to us as modern readers of the text and just kind of going to it and go, that's kind of a weird question. Well, do you pay your tax to Caesar? It sounds interesting, but it comes back to their intent. It's not like they're coming as students who are hungry to learn and are questioning like, man, I don't know if we should be doing this. Is this okay? Is this right for us to do as, as uh, you know, followers of Yahweh? Is this right for us to continue to pay this tax to, to Caesar and to Rome? No, that's, that's not what their heart posture is at all. Right, Their heart posture is wicked. It's one to plot. It's one to trap Jesus. It's one to make sure they can get somebody to accuse him so that someone would harm him. We've seen in the Gospel of Matthew that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are all trying to get Jesus so that he would stop doing what he's actually doing. So they don't actually want an answer to the question. They have these poor intentions. And we get to this point to where we see the question come. Hey, teacher, tell us. What do you think is it lawful to pay tax to the the tax to Caesar or not? Now, for us to really understand what the tax meant, it's pretty controversial in their history. It's pretty controversial for a couple of reasons. First, this was a poll tax. Earlier, a couple chapters ago, we kind of walked through the temple tax that we discussed. But here, it's a poll tax that was a wage that Rome kind of put on the Israelite people simply because they're over them. They're like, hey, we came you submit to us, so pay us a denarius. Denarius is just a daily wage, so it's just one day's worth of work. So it's not like it's a huge amount of money, but it is something to where they have to say, hey, okay, this is something where I have to pay them even though I'm already taxed for an abundance of other things. And really it's not for like my benefit. It's not like this is going for you helping me make sure the roads are done. It's just you're just having this unlawful tax over us that's making me just respond to the fact that you're charging me because you're over me and so I'm paying you so that you could be over me all the more. It's like they're paying for their own oppression in a sense. And so we see okay, this doesn't really make sense why they're actually participating in this. I mean, imagine if Canada was just like, hey, we're coming in Americans. And they just like took over. And it was like, what do we do? And they're like, Give us a dollar, you know. We're like, oh, that's not very fun. I don't want to give you my money just because your uh, authority is over us and you punked us somehow with your funny Canadian hats and stuff, and and you're just sitting there and you're kind of wondering, okay, cool. This, this, this isn't, isn't really, really cool. They don't like this for a lot, a lot of different, different reasons. N- second reason why this is controversial: these people, uh, the, the third people group that's kind of in this, uh, isn't really like in the story. We don't read into it, but the story behind the Zealots is actually something that's interesting. As what they're trying to do is pin Jesus either against Rome or against the Jewish people and the Zealots. So several years before this, in AD chapter or AD chapter 6, 86, uh, there, there, uh, there was a revolt against. Uh, the Roman taxation, right? Against Rome, there's this guy named Judas the Zealot. And so he gains followers, and they start to have these guerrilla warfare tactics where they're attacking the Roman rulers, the leaders, and they're trying to make sure that they're releasing themselves from this oppression that Rome has kind of come in. But eventually, Rome uh, defeats them, kills Judas, and the rebellion's kind of lost. But there's still remnants of his followers. These are the Zealots, right? Kind of like uh, they're, they're Robin Hood, so to speak. And now, as we start to see this and unpack this, there's really like three different groups of people who are kind of involved in this situation. There's the Herodians, who are pro Rome. Then there's uh, the Pharisees, Jewish people, right, that are kind of there. And then there's uh, Zealots, who they're trying to pin Jesus against either side of them. They're trying to say, hey, who's Jesus's allegiance really with? Who's he partial to? Whose side is he going to take? So the Pharisees, they're striking up this question to pin Jesus to someone. And they're trying to make it so that the other people would get frustrated, angry, so that they would accuse him, take him to jail, murder him, whatever it might be, just so that they can get him out of their hair. Because if Jesus answers and says, yeah, you should pay the tax. The Jewish people and the zealots, they're going to see him as a threat, right? The zealots are going to be like, this guy's totally pro-Rome. We need to get him out of here. He's going to lose his following of all his Jewish followers. But if he says, no, don't pay the tax, the Herodians are probably going to go back to their Roman rulers and they're going to say, hey, we need to get this guy out. He's a threat to Rome. He's saying they shouldn't honor you, that they shouldn't pay their tax. And he's avoiding uh, what he's supposed to do. And he's telling people to do this as well. So, how does Jesus answer the question? He reframes the question, he answers it in a different way. He takes what was a trap and he turns it into a teaching opportunity. As they ask the question, Jesus lets them know that he's not buying their nice words, how he responds, perceiving their malicious intent, in verse 18. Proceeding. He knows that they're not coming at him, genuinely asking this question. He knows that they're trying to trap him. He calls them hypocrites. He says, why are you testing me? He's not fooled by them at all. And Jesus goes on to tell them, show me the coin used for the tax. So they go and they bring him a denarius. And Jesus responds with another question to them. He says, Show me the coin that's used for the tax. Whose image and inscription is on this? Caesar. Caesar, of course, his image is on it. Not only his face, but also something. It says something on the coin. On the one side, it says that he's the son of the divine. On the other side, if you flip the coin over, it says that he's the high priest. So in some ways, the people are saying, "Hey, if we're paying this tax, if we're using this coin, is this blasphemous in one way? Is this an opportunity for us to actually like, should we reject this because we're using money that says that this guy's God?" And, and as we start to examine this, Jesus gives them the answer to say, "Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's." And if you would have stopped right there people would have gone crazy. And can you imagine the tension? I almost wonder if he paused after he communicated this and he told them this, but that's not where he stops because the people would have been very angry listening, but Jesus turns this into a sweet teaching moment where he goes on to say, give to God what is God's. Here's how Jesus turns this trap into a really beautiful teaching moment. The coin is Caesar's, right? It's got his image on it. It's probably made by a bunch of people who work for Caesar, who are under Caesar's authority, under his rule, probably made in order to pay other people to do some work or maybe some slave work. And you go, okay, that that can make sense, how this really belongs to him. Or give back or render to Caesar what is Caesar's. So give it back to him. It belongs to him. But then he responds and says, give to God what is God's. And it kind of makes you sit here and wrestle with, okay, what is Jesus trying to communicate? Well, look at how he's described the coin. Whose image is on the coin? Caesar's. So as he says, give back to God what is God's, Jesus is pointing them to show, man, his image is on the people that he's made. You go back to creation. We get the story in Genesis about God created the earth. He's creator of all things. And he's made man and woman in his image, in his likeness. And so we consider what Jesus is saying here. It's an instruction to see what belongs to God as the creator of the world. Everything really belongs to him. And as we think of people themselves, what Jesus is instructing them before, uh, before all of them, he's saying, hey, the coin, the image bears Caesar, so it reflects him. So it belongs to who he is. But whose image do you reflect? God's image. And so you belong to God. All of who you are, all of your worship, your identity, where you come from, you belong to God. And God's image bearers, right? We're supposed to multiply and fill the earth with his image to go forward, but clearly sin has entered into the world. And as we start to see the story of scripture unfold, Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, we see him teaching about the kingdom of God. He's telling the people about the kingdom of God over and over again. He's challenging them to reflect God's image on the earth, to bring God's image to the earth, to fill it with God's image, right? So as, as he's telling them to be image bearers, he's also telling them how their life should reflect and where their true allegiance should be. They want an answer to know, Jesus, are you going to side with the Jewish people or are you going to side with Romans? And Jesus comes back and says, Neither. I'm submitting to the God of the universe, the the one who's created all things. We see that Jesus points them to who he's really submitting to, not a man-made party of people or a group, but he's ultimately submitting to God himself. So he answers the question for them, yes, they should pay the tax. Yes, they should give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But at the same time, he's telling them, don't put your allegiance to a people group, but put all of your allegiance to the one God who is the creator of all things. The one whose image you bear, the one who you reflect, the one who loves you so much that he has come for you. The one who is going to save you. You should worship him and him alone. You should give Everything to him that is yours. Give to God what is God's, which is their whole life. I think this is really helpful for us today as well. As we start to examine and see how we as believers in a season... That's potentially filled with a lot of tension as you start to think of just politics or government or how do we respond in light of what's going on in our modern day? What is Jesus really instructing us to? And it's a reminder to see that Jesus is instructing us to respond to the one who has all authority. The one true creator whose image we bear as people. And as and we've lived, right, the last couple of years have been some of the most, like, divisive years. If we're all honest, we can kind of see, like, there's a lot of division in terms of the political conversations or what we should do, how we should live, how do Christians respond in light of all of this stuff. And I think this passage is helping us truly live out what Jesus is calling us to do, is to reflect God's image and to be a people who are giving all of their worship to God and God alone. Here Jesus is explaining, yeah, you you should pay the tax, right? You should honor the, the government or what is before you, the authority before you, but you should submit your lives to God first and foremost. And he's saying it's not a contradiction, It's not a contradiction at all because of who God is. He is over all things. And I think this passage, well, a couple of other passages help us truly understand how Christians live in their modern day, in our modern day culture, how we actually interact with the things as we're trying to gauge. What does it mean to be an image bearer? What does it mean to be a New Testament Christian? And yet at the same time, take these scriptures, take verses right 21, as Jesus tells us, give them to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. How do we respond? What is Jesus communicating to us? In John chapter 19, we see Jesus continue to show, hey, how do we respond to governing authorities? John chapter 19, Jesus is standing before Pilate. He's on trial. All of the people are shouting, hey, crucify him, crucify him. How is Jesus responding? He's quiet in the midst of it. He's silent when people are shouting for him to be killed, While he's innocent. In verse 10, we see this conversation between Jesus and Pilate, who's the governing authority at the time. Verse 10, he says, don't you know that I have authority? This is Pilate speaking to Jesus. Don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus is standing there as Pilate's trying to demonstrate the power and the authority that he has over Jesus in this moment. Verse 11, Jesus goes on to respond and he says, you would have no authority over me at all if it hadn't been given to you from above. Pilate, a governing official, only has authority because God gave it to him. God's given that to him. Another set of verses that maybe help us understand this a little bit more. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7 help us see these things, but I'm just going to read a couple of the verses here. Romans chapter 13. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Again, it's showing here how God's placed in the authorities there. So as we kind of consider what Jesus is instructing, hey, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's, how we as Christians currently actually walk, and I know it feels kind of a little tense. Oh, where's he going? Oh, who's talking about governing authorities. It's all right. Hey, the scriptures are pointing us to see what Jesus is actually instructing for us today. And as we walk in light of this, Jesus isn't saying, make sure you agree with absolutely everything they say. He's not saying give all of your allegiance to them. But the instruction we're responding with or actually what Jesus is calling us to in Matthew 22 is he's helping us see where's our image come from? Whose image do we reflect? How do we respond in our lives today to actually look at what Jesus is instructing us to? As people who submit to God, we give our whole lives to God. We give all of who we are to him and to him alone because he's the one who's in control over all things. He oversees all things. Everything is in the palm of his hands. And we can consider that God is the one who we respond to first and foremost in our lives. That our whole life is dependent on who he is because he's the creator creator of the world. He sustains us. He's given us life, and we can trust in that reality. Jesus is speaking this to the people. Even consider how they would respond. Consider what maybe is processing through their minds. I mean, the Jewish people were oppressed, and Jesus is telling them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Probably not super comforting for them to be able to receive that and how they're going to respond to that. (laughs) Think of maybe further on in the New Testament how the rest of them are responding to these instructions that's given to them, right? Like submitting to the Roman government wasn't something that was really fun. Like, you didn't want to mess with the Roman government. I mean, they would punish people. They, uh, they, had, they didn't have a ton of freedom over it. They would crucify people. Uh, and, and after the resurrection of Jesus, we see maybe even how the disciples continue to respond to what it means to give to Caesar. What is Caesar's? How do they live this out? And if you start to think there's there's a bunch of different opportunities where we read in the scriptures how the Christians respond. I mean, think of Peter as he writes his letter, 1 Peter, he's writing to the Christians who are oppressed by the Roman government, Emperor Nero, probably one of the most fierce, cruel, wicked rulers the world has ever seen. He's imprisoning Christians, brothers and sisters. And the same ethic Peter gives to them and how they respond. Peter's writing to a people who are probably scared, suffering, being persecuted. And here's what he tells them. Imagine somebody who maybe is sitting in their church, receives this letter and goes before all of them to stand up and read this. First Peter chapter two, verse 13. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord. Whether to the emperor or the supreme authority or to governors as those who sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. Imagine reading that if you're sitting under this persecution and you're like, well, that doesn't sound very fun. There's also times, though, where we see them actually respond in a different way, where they stand up for what is true and what is good as they respond to the governing officials. Right In the book of Acts, we see uh, Peter, John, they're proclaiming the gospel, they're going before, they're watching miracles happen, people are coming to faith, it's amazing and beautiful, and then they have to go to trial, and the religious leaders are telling them, hey, uh, stop that, or else we're putting you in jail. And how do they respond? In Acts chapter 5, verse 29, Peter tells them, we must obey God rather than man. So when it's invading their their worship to God, when it's invading their proclamation of the gospel, they stand up against the authority. We think of stories like Daniel, who doesn't submit to the, the authority in Babylon as he's wanting to honor God and to worship God and God alone. And so as we consider this instruction that Jesus is giving us here, we start to see something that we can learn from and grow and continue to process. Whose image do we reflect? God's. Our whole life is his. And so how do Christians live this out? How do we respond and bear God's image to the rest of the world? In light of this specific passage and how we're talking about fitting into our culture and walking among the world and, and all of the things that we're doing here. How do we give to Caesar what is Caesar's? How do we give to God what is God's? By living out our true identity in Christ. By continuing to pursue Jesus and who he is. By worshiping him with all of who we are. Jesus just finished teaching on three parables where he talks about the kingdom of God. He's bringing up this image for them to see. Matthew's been discussing the kingdom of God over and over and over again. And he's saying, bring the kingdom to the earth, right? That, God would, that God's image bearers, Christians, that we would reflect his image to the rest of the world. That we would live differently. That we would look differently. That God would continue to do his work through us. So a couple of things to really consider from this passage. How do we we respond? How do we actually respond to what Jesus is calling us to as believers? How do we look at this text and go, okay, what does this mean for modern day readers? A couple of things to maybe consider. The first application maybe for us to think of in light of our cultural world today, how we respond, how do we give to Caesar what is Caesar's? I would say first and foremost, we could self-evaluate. Like that's a very, that's a first thing we could do as Christians that we would be humble to look at ourselves to ask God, man, how am I doing in my worship of God? Am I worshipping Jesus with every part of my life? Am I giving everything over to him? Because he's the one who gave everything to me. We say it when we talk about giving in our announcements. Man, we want to be a people who live sufficiently, give extravagantly. and then we talk about like why? Because we want to worship God with every part of our lives. Every part of our lives and our hearts. And I'm grateful uh, to Jesus because as I consider, man, how's our church doing in light of health in terms of what God is doing in the midst of this? Man, I'm grateful because over the last several years... Our church hasn't really been divisive. Uh, like God's brought us good unity, and that's something to give God glory for and to praise him and thank him for. Uh, I just read on Facebook the other day, a pastor a friend of mine who I think he's down in Florida, uh, was part of a church, leading a church, and there was huge division in the church. And so he's actually left the pastorate because it was so exhausting, because it's tired him out because of all the division and trying to point people towards Jesus. And it just got so bad that he had to step away from it. And I'm grateful that we have an opportunity as God's people to continue to self-evaluate, to continue to ask Jesus to remind us of our first love, that we as image bearers would reflect his image to the rest of the world, that we have great unity in who he is and what he's done. And one way maybe to self-evaluate is to ask yourself in light of this, as we're considering, hey, how do we respond in terms of just our everyday politics today? Well, as we consider it, maybe one question to ask yourself is, when was the last time I disagreed with the people I most affiliate with? When's the last time I disagreed with the people, the party I most affiliate with? Here, they're trying to get Jesus to be one-sided. They're trying to say, Jesus, what side are you on? Where are you at? You with, you with the Herodians? You with Rome, pro-Rome, our party? Or are you with the Zealots? Are you against Rome? Are you ready to get people to just attack them and, and seize them? But Jesus isn't one-sided. He's one-sided to where his actual submission is to God and to God alone. And so my question is, when's the last time maybe you uh, disagreed with your own party or your own people that you maybe see yourself most closest with? Second question is, how worked up are you getting... How, how emotional or angry, frustrated are you getting? Are you starting to hate people because they, they view something differently than you? Are you belittling them? Are you getting angry to them where you don't want to interact with someone simply because they have a, a sign on a front lawn or they're wearing a hat with a slogan? Like, are, are you getting so worked up that you're visibly angry and frustrated? That might be a sign that you're worshiping something else rather than worshiping God. And giving everything to God and to God alone. Because we've, we've started to see how Jesus has been at work in our church. And I'm grateful that God's been at great work in the life of our church. And how we can continue to respond as God's image bearers. Man, the people who are maybe view things differently than you, see things differently, as we respond, they're image bearers too. Our, our purpose is to bring God glory. Our, our goal in life is to continue to honor God with all of who we do as image bearers. And they're image bearers as well. We can love them and respond well because of who God is. Our enemy is not someone with a different view. But our enemy is not a flesh and blood. But our enemy is the powers of darkness and evil. Right? Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that. What's a second way that we can respond? Pray. 1 Timothy chapter 2 talks about praying as believers for our government and leaders. Regardless, if you love them, if you like them, if you want them out of the office, we can ask God to be at work in their lives. And in our lives, as we process it all, as we're asking God to be at work, as they lead, we can pray that Jesus would be at work in our communities. Through us, through them, we can pray for elections. I mean, we have a mayoral race that's coming up in Lincoln. We can pray for that and ask God to be at work uh, just in our hearts and in our city through that. We can pray as Christians. And honestly, this has been something that I've had to grow in. This has been something that God's kind of moved in my heart to stir me. Man, I should be I should be praying more. Not just like in general for me, but I should be praying for my neighborhood, my community, our city, what God's doing in light of that. And then a third application maybe that I was just considering as I was processing. Man, what does it mean to give back to Caesar what is Caesar's? Yeah, I want to honor God with what he's instructed me to honor. But part of that means I have to be like informed, right? Like he's hey, as we're talking taxis, and yeah, like, cool, Uh, I want to honor God and not cheat or lie on my taxes. Like, that's a, I'm on TurboTax, and I'm like, dang, it's going to be kind of easy to lie on this thing. And you're starting to think, and I was processing it all, and I'm like, no, but I want to honor the Lord with a reality and be honest with what God's doing in our lives, financially, in that sense, but at the same time, I want to honor God with everything. I'm processing it all, man. I want to be informed and be engaged. Those are two words that I was thinking of as a third application, to be informed and engaged in that we live in a country and in a place that allows us to participate in the role of elections. That's a beautiful gift. Places across the world don't have that. We have a gift to be able to participate. It's a huge blessing that we can just ask God uh, to give us wisdom and how we're processing all this stuff. Here's the reality. As we're thinking about uh, what it means to give to Caesars what is Caesars, sometimes like these main leaders or as we're wondering, what does that mean? The Bible doesn't give us, like, a direct answer for how we should respond to every si- single circumstance, situation. gives us great opportunity to look and to learn from what God's calling us to, to respond to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, to worship Him with all of our lives. But I think sometimes when you're wondering, like, okay, how do I think through this well— How do I think through this policy, this thing that's going on? How do I give to Caesar what is Caesar's in this moment and in this day and age? And we don't have a direct answer. Opportunity for us, I think, the Bible doesn't give us absolute clarity with every single thing that we should vote on, period. And so I think that's an opportunity for us to step into Jesus and say, Lord, would you help me process? But you press in to who Jesus is and ask him to do more in your life and at work and even in your own heart to see Jesus as our true Lord, to see Jesus as our true Savior and who he actually is? Because as we look at Matthew 22, what if we responded how Jesus calls us to respond? What if we responded like a people who responded to give to God what is God's? What if we were a people who reflected God's image? What if our church, the church, was a place where people from different backgrounds, political ideas, parties, differing ideas, honored God? Ooh, excuse me. That's the donut there. And, uh, <laughs> and, and respected those around us. Could you imagine how different we would look to the rest of the world? Could you imagine how people from across the world would be like, hold on. You think differently than them, and yet you're friends with them. Yeah, because I honor God, because I submit to him, because he's the king of my life, because he's the one authority who I look to. He's the king of the world. He's the one who's continued to save me, and he's the one who's continued to move in my life, and I owe him everything. And that's why I can have unity with someone else. That's why I can love somebody else. Man, the church should be a place with wise, emotionally stable, kind people who are free to know God is in control. So we don't have to feel like the world is out of control. Because sometimes when we get caught up too much with thinking about the end of the world or what's happening and all the things that are going on or processing, fear can strike us. Anxiety can strike us. We can get really worried or concerned. But when we see this, man, we we know that God is in control. We know our lives belong to him. We know our whole life is in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because as we view this, Jesus here is responding, submit to God. So the question becomes like, man, who is our authority? Who is our ultimate authority? As we flip forward through the gospel of Matthew, we read Jesus' great words at the end of it all. All authority has been given to me. As he gives the great commission, as he resurrects from the dead, as he defeats sin and death, our invitation is to respond to the authority of Jesus, to the submission of the one true God, to the real king. What if we were known for our unity, for our love for one another because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done for us, because of the life that we now have because of Christ and Christ alone? Jesus showed himself to be the one who was quiet, peaceful, not full of anger towards those who tried to impose themselves on him. Before governors, he stood with confidence with where his allegiance was. Before leaders, as he was taken to the cross, mocked, he had no fear because he trusted in the one who sent him. Man, we have beauty and comfort in knowing that Jesus is our true authority. Jesus is our true king. That's whose image we reflect. That's who gave his life for us so that we could have life everlasting with him. We look to Jesus as our true king. So what if we were known not for asking the question, whose side are you on, but for giving God what is God's? All of who we are. Let's pray that this would be true. Jesus, I thank you um, that you are a God who is in control. <coughs> Lord, I thank you that um, yeah, that even in uh, just the world today that we can take and learn uh, and respond to what you've given to us in your word. that as we examine and, and respond to your conversation, Uh, with the Pharisees, disciples, and with the Herodians, that as they talk to you about uh, the image on the coin and whether they should pay the tax or not pay the tax, Jesus that you gave them great clarity uh, that we should give to God all that is God's. And so, Lord, as our image uh, is your image, as we reflect your image, uh, Lord, would we give you all that is yours, which is our lives. Lord, would we give you all of who we are because of who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that as uh, we are responding to this, God, that you would help us continue to lean into you, to press into who you are, that you would uh, continue to give us wisdom uh, and love for one another, for other image bearers, for other people on this place. And we'd be a people who are known for their unity and for their love, Lord, first and foremost.